are not, uh, you know, if you don't have a Bible or whatever. So love to give people Bibles around here. Special shout out to Dale and Bertha Andrews. I've never met them. I think they've since passed away, but it was their uh, money, their donation or memorial fund or whatever that provided all these wonderful hardback, large print Bibles. Um, and uh, so, yeah, shout out to Dale and Bertha. Appreciate you. Well, Tuesday morning, I show up to my office here, uh, which is a wonderful, cozy little little room to do some sermon reading, and um, I uh, start blazing through some sermon reading, uh, study, and reading some reading some scripture, reading some commentaries, trying to uh, wrestle with this text. And um, about maybe uh, ten or so, I uh, I was just like really feeling the way the weight of this passage and well, an unhealthy way that I cope with emotions is through uh, eating pizza and uh, watching movies and so that was like I actually checked like when does Jets open I did not eat pizza or watch a movie but my point is that this this passage brought up a lot of feels for me it's been a very heavy week uh, for me and Uh, I just want to uh, make it okay for us uh, to, to have lots of feels as we look at what Jesus is saying here and to be curious about them. Uh, see them as our, our Lord and Savior. Like these, are, these would be in red. You know, this is Jesus, our Lord and Savior, uh, speaking to us. These words, if you have a red letter version Bible, will be in red. And uh, they're kind of like smelling salts. They're kind of like the, just, you know, wake you up, clear your sinuses or like habanero sauce or something like that. And so if you're, uh, if you're not a little scared or a little uncomfortable about these passages, then you might not be really be hearing what Jesus is saying. And, and, and I also just really want to give a lot of space for us to feel scared. Like, I think there's, there's space for this to feel uncomfortable. Um, and, the, and the call, as we're seeing in, uh, around Jesus' authority, was the kind of the um, theme of these chapters in Matthew that we're going through is always a call to faith and courage, these like inseparable things to faith and courage. Like it's not enough just to mentally say like, yeah, Jesus, I'm all about you. Uh, we have to have faith and take that belief into action. So I just want us to be kind of curious about how our hearts respond to him. And, and my prayer, like one of the heaviest things this week is that we would really hear Jesus and, and that I, w- I would preach in such a way that you can't put it on me. You can't get mad at, I mean, you can get mad at me all you want. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but ultimately, I pray that we, anything that I say would just help you understand what Jesus is saying and, and not be something that you can write off as just coming from me. Because I've literally been on the floor a lot this week, just praying, you know, praying that God would protect me from adding any unnecessary harshness. Um, I also don't want to soften the words of Jesus, you know, like you ever read something and then you're like, I need to get some footnotes because he can't have meant, meant that. Like, you know, come on, commentator, tell me what this really means because it can't mean that. Uh, so I, both those things, I don't want to add any extra sting. These are plenty, plenty sting, stinging enough. I also don't want to take the sting out. Um, and ultimately, as we read in our assurance, uh, the, the call to follow Jesus is, a, is an invitation. Like Jesus never coerces anybody. He never forces anybody to follow him, and people have the choice to do it or not. But the reason why he would do that, why we issue this scary call, is because, as we read, this is how we find rest for our souls. Even though it requires us to leave things, it requires us to make him our first priority. Ultimately, it's how our souls flourish. 
what's it called, to come to Jesus, come to true rest. Like I talk about wanting pizza in a movie just to kind of like hit the eject button and zone out and until I eat, till I can't feel or whatever. And uh, that's really not the good life with God. You know, like there, there's a way of comfort that, that brings us to Jesus, that where I can look at my emotions in the face and not run away from them and, uh, and, and let Jesus be my comfort. So let me pray before we dive in here. Just wanted to give that caveat. Pray the Spirit is with us. Oh, Father, we need you so much right now. As we set aside this time to hear from Jesus, to hear from your word, uh, to be together as the body, uh, would you be with us? Would you, uh, by the power of your spirit, uh, open our hearts to hear what Jesus has, has to say? Would you let, uh, let us be just as suspicious of our own reactions as we are of Jesus or of me? Would you give, a, give us just a curiosity about why we would respond certain ways? What, what objections come up in our hearts and minds as we hear Jesus' words here? Father, uh, in the name of Jesus, would you, would you just knit us into uh, a group of devoted disciples? Would you awaken our hearts to follow Jesus uh, by grace, through faith, in our real lives? Would you uh, do the work of letting us see this call to follow him as good news? Only you can do that, and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's dive into the text here. We're in verse 18. If you're in the Pew Bible, this is page 1507, just right, right at the bottom there. Verse 18, Jesus says, or it says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. This is something that is so fascinating to me about Jesus' way of being in the world, is that when he sees these crowds that are all excited and curious about him, he's, he leaves. Like the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at, it starts off, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and, and, and sat down. He like leaves the crowds. And right before this, we looked at last week, uh, Jesus uh, healed Peter's mother-in-law and word got out. And then this huge crowd, he's healing all these diseases and casting out demons, doing all these things. And so there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of excitement around Jesus right now. This crowd is there because he's working some mind-blowing miracles. And so you can see him just kind of like really caring for individuals and caring for people and healing them, which is what he does with his authority over all things. And then he looks up and just sees this huge crowd and is like, I need, I need to get out of here. So why does he do that? Why does he see the crowds and leave? This is a pattern of Jesus's way of being in the world. And what it shows us is that there's three ways to respond to Jesus that we see in Scripture. First, we're not going to talk about them today, are the people who openly were hostile to him, who openly tried to trap him and ultimately killed him. Uh, so he, he's got some haters. Jesus uh, is very familiar with people hating him and persecuting him. Uh, you know, his story uh, includes you know, being killed, uh, which, is, which is a pretty strong opposition. And then you have uh, the disciples. This is a, a term that's way more common than Christian, uh, than the term Christian in Scripture. It means like a student or an apprentice kind of function. And they're people, we obviously have the 12 disciples that were like his inner circle who Jesus called, and they followed him, they left everything. Uh, but it, it also, Scripture also shows us that there are other disciples. There are other people that were following him. He sends out the 12, but then he also sends out 72 at one point in his ministry. So he had, apparently had 72 disciples at, at some point in his ministry. And these are people that have made some kind of commitment 
uh, to, to follow Jesus. Uh, we, we see in the 12 disciples that they just like straight left everything. Like they're like on their fishing boats, earning a living, like just doing the family business. And they just like put the nets down and leave. You know, or Levi, Matthew, the guy who wrote this, he was a tax collector, a, a pretty terrible person if you unpack it before you met Jesus. He's like in his tax booth, like doing his job, which is mostly oppressing his own people for the Roman government. And he just like leaves, you know, I don't, they lock up the safe first. I don't know, but uh, we see people just leaving to follow Jesus as part of his disciples. And then we have the crowds, people who were curious and he taught the crowds. He wasn't like always running away from them, but he, he definitely limited how much time he hung out with the crowds. And they were people who were just kind of curious about Jesus. They'd kind of, kind of like a, you know, watching a YouTube TED talk, TED talk or something like you're not an apprentice to that person on the TED Talk. You're just like, I'll listen to what you had to say. I'll consider it. Or there are people who just got excited about all the miracles. Or, you know, at some point he starts feeding people. And so they wanted some free food, you know. Uh, it's easy to get people to show up when there's free food. And, you know, ironically, it's probably more like Instagram followers. Like the crowd, you can think of the crowd as like Instagram followers. People who like want to keep tabs on what Jesus is doing. They're curious. Uh, but, you know, it's just kind of like a, a, a scrolling thing. And Jesus is always extending this call to follow him to the crowds. He's, he's trying to move people from the crowds to disciples. And the reason that is is because Jesus' mission was to, cre- to make disciples. That's the mission that he gives us, to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that he said. And so the reason he pulls away from the crowds is because he wants to focus on his, in his crew. On, it, on the people who have said, we will follow you. We want to learn. He did not come to entertain or to be famous. He's always, you know, don't tell people I, hurt, I, I healed you. You know, he's always trying to fly low because at the end of the day, his grand plan was to spend time with 12 men and disciple them so that then they can go and, and be the church. And we're here today in this room because of the, the Jesus discipling these 12 men. At Pentecost, and uh, after Jesus had left, he only had 122 followers. So we see, like, him feeding 5,000. We see these huge numbers in Scripture. Uh, but at the end of the day, after he rose into heaven, he, he only had 120 followers. That's what the church started as. So Jesus was never a megachurch pastor. He's never, he had lots of crowds and stuff, but a, most of them did not choose to follow him. And he leaves the crowds because he wants to spend time with his disciples So I belabor this point because I just want us to consider which group we would fall into. Are we, are we part of the crowd? Are we part of the disciples? Have we left anything to follow him? And you know, I suppose we could have some haters in here as well, people who are openly against Jesus, but hopefully not. And, and this is one of the huge burdens on my heart. And I, and I just, Holy Spirit, protect, protect us. Is that when I think about the, the church culture in America, I would say the majority of us probably fall in, in to the crowds. There was an older pastor in his 70s who was trained to be a pastor in, I don't know, 50s or 60s or something. He told me that when he was training, this is like back in like, you know, the heyday, right? 50s, 60s, when all this was built and everything. He said, and this was just like unapologetic. He was, he was told 
that. You should just assume only 10% of your church is really a, a follower of Jesus. Just assume that, which is a super, super scary, sad thing. One, that, that we would just like be okay with that, and two, that, that that was the paradigm, that was the percentage that they were working with back then. So I just want us to be aware of the, the ways to respond to Jesus that we see in Scripture and just to kind of consider where you are in your response to him. Because Jesus is calling these people to follow, two people in particular that we're going to see here. Uh, and he's uh, addressing two, two main things that would keep people from following him, keep people from leaving the crowd and becoming a disciple. And it's interesting, it's never a drug addiction. Like, it's never, you know, like a huge gambling operation that they're running. The, the things that these two men that we're about to see have standing in their way are good things. And this is a, a common thing. Jesus always comes after our heart to show us that we, we take good things and make them the best thing or the ultimate thing. So Jesus is noticing something wrong in the hearts of the men that we're about to see. There's nothing inherently evil or sinful in what they're saying or what, they're, what, what, what they want to do or what they value or prioritize, but he's noticing something in their hearts that the priorities are out of whack, that the, the priorities required to be a disciple are not there at this point, but he calls them to be there. So let's look at these two guys here. Look at verse 19. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Seems like a pretty uh, you know, slow pitch fastball right down the plate for Jesus to just, you know, that's a, that's a pretty easily easy evangelism opportunity. A couple of things about this guy. He was a scribe or a teacher of the law, which in this culture meant he would have had a pretty good place in it. He would have been a man of position, probably uh, well uh, financially set up, and uh, he would have belonged and, and, and just had a lot of security and, and, uh, and comfort in his life because he was celebrated by people. He had a clear role. It was a, in, in this Jewish culture, people who taught the law, people who were scribes and mastered in it, like they were, they were kind of top of, uh, top of the social hierarchy. Look what Jesus says to him. He says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Isn't that a weird way to respond? Like this guy's like on board, like I'm on board, I'm hyped. I just saw all these miracles happen in verse 16, and I want to go anywhere you go. Like he sees Jesus and his disciples starting to get into a boat and leave the crowd, and he's like, take me with you. But Jesus noticed something in his heart. In this moment of hype where all these people got healed, he seems to be picking up that this guy is really about security. He's really about comfort. He's seeing Jesus, this teacher, do all these miracles, and he's like, that's what I want. I want someone who's got authority over all that stuff. Then I'll be safe. Then I'll be comfortable. And Jesus is saying, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's saying, like, don't follow me ultimately for comfort of this world. He says the comfort and security that you're looking for, following me, you give up. Even animals, like non-persons, have 
places to rest, like safe, comfortable places to rest. He's saying the Son of Man, God in the flesh, does not, and neither do his followers. That it's not guaranteed to his followers. He's telling this man, like, I know you're hyped right now. I know you're excited about this, but count the cost. Count the cost of following me because we're going to rough it. We're going to give up and be open-handed about all the basic comforts and securities that this world has to offer. His status, his position as a teacher of the law. One commentator summarized it like this. Jesus is making it clear that to follow him is devoid of all middle-class security. It's not me. I'm just quoting. This is what just was so heavy on my heart because, again, it's not like our cocaine habits or whatever that Jesus is coming after. If you have one, let's talk. But he's coming after these, these like, precious treasures that we have, which is like our, our middle-class security or our pursuit of money or uh, Dave Ramsey-style money management, which is a great thing that can become, is a good thing that can become a, too important to us. Jesus is saying, like, that's great if you want to follow me. Just know you will have to let go of comfort and security that you'll see people around you having. But we don't get the scribe's answer. We don't get either of these guys' answer. Why does, the teacher, why does Matthew leave out the answers? Like, do they say, okay, and get in the boat, or, or, or what happens? And it's because Matthew, he's putting his, his biography of Jesus together in such a way to ask us that question. Like, would we follow Jesus away from comfort and security that in our culture would seem like a basic human right? Or if you don't have, then you're doing something wrong. You're being irresponsible. But Matthew, he just dropped all the teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us these three incredible miracles showing Jesus' authority over illnesses, and then he issues a call to us through, through these two, two men. Will we follow Jesus away from comfort and security? Would, would you follow Jesus if it meant losing your comforts, your, your right to own a home, or your comfy couch and Netflix, or, or comfort food, like the, the pizza that, I'm so instinctively, that I instinctively go to? A question for you is, to, to what extent does comfort and security keep you from following Jesus? Because I think in our culture, there, we're just a really comfortable culture. We're very affluent. Christianity historically has had a pretty good spot in it. So it's easy to say, I'll follow him until it's uh, as long as he's comfortable. But you can also view this like the parable of the rocky soil, where the, the word of God, the gospel, comes to rocky soil as a seed, and it might even spring up and have a little plant. But when things get uncomfortable, when the sun beats down, it dies, and it doesn't produce fruit. It's not actually taking root. To what extent has comfort and security keep you from following Jesus? Question to chew on. Well, Jesus has authority to, to call us away from comfort and security. Let's look at the, the, next, the next guy that pops up. 
So he's moving away from the crowds. And this guy, they call him a disciple. Look at verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. So this guy has the, the title of disciple. So he wasn't, I don't think he was one of the 12, as m- most scholars say. Uh, but he and made some form of commitment uh, to be around Jesus or to follow Jesus. And he says, let me first go and bury my father. So if the first guy, the scribe, the teacher of the law, if he's hyped, this guy is hesitant. So we see kind of like both ends of the spectrum to some, degree, to some degree. This guy just saw a bunch of miracles and he's all hyped up. Jesus is like, whoa, like count the cost. This guy is hesitant. He says, but first, yeah, I, I will do that, but first I got to do this other stuff. He says, I have to bury my father. Matthew uses... This, this example, because this in, in that culture would have been one of the most significant responsibilities that a, that a person would have to his family, to his biological family. You look at the different customs and cultures and laws of this day, all kinds of exceptions were made around your father, like, like priests who weren't allowed to have anything to do with death, were relieved of that, like defilement to take care of their fathers, all kinds of things were uh, allowed in order to take care of your father because it was that important of, uh, of an issue. And it's more than likely that his father was not actually dead, like waiting to be buried, uh, because they typically buried people the day that they passed away. And so more than likely what he's getting at is his father was old and aging and getting close, and he said, let, let me just go, you know, take care of my father until he passes away and bury him and, you know, tie up all the loose ends, and then I'll follow you. But first, let me, let me do this. Let me take care of this. So he really would have been postponing discipleship for, for a few years. Like, someday when my father passes away and things clear out, you know, then, then I'll be able to do it. You know, when the kids are out of the house, when I get out of college, when um, my money is in a better place, you know, someday I will, I will follow you. So there's lots of things that we could put before Jesus, you know, but first let me do this. But I really want us to dial into the, to the issue at hand here that Matthew is pointing out to us, that Jesus is highlighting. It means that Jesus has authority to call us away from our families from our biological families. To follow Jesus means that to some degree, it will look like severing family ties. When he says, look at verse 22, he says, but Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. This is, uh, if you want to get nerdy, this is the uh, imperative present tense. It's like, keep on following me. This guy already had the title disciple in some way, shape, or form, and he's like, don't turn aside from the course. Like, keep on following me. Don't get distracted. Do not let family obligations stand in the way. If we're continuing the parable of the sower, this probably would have been like the seed, the seed of the kingdom that fell on the soil with weeds, where the the plant of the kingdom springs up, but then the cares of this life and the riches of the world just kind of strangle it out. And again, is it sinful to take, want to take care of your father? Is it bad to have family and kids or anything? Of course not. This is really a, a powerful but also a little bit nuanced topic, and he actually hits it again in a couple of chapters, so we'll be talking about it again. But he's pointing out 
the incredible supremacy of following Jesus, of Jesus being first over everything. Because of his authority, he can call us away from all these things that we feel like might be a God-given right. When he says, let the, bed, the dead bury their own dead, what is he getting at? He's getting at the, the two realities. There's a, there's a spiritual realm. There's a kingdom of heaven. There's a, a way of being within the world with, with God. And then, and then there's the, the dead way. There's the, the up separated from God kind of way of being in the world. What he's saying is to be spiritually dead, to not be a disciple of Jesus, means to be as blind and deaf and insensitive to the spiritual realities as a dead body is to physical realities. Like how much is a, blind, is a dead person seeing or feeling? Nothing. Not, not, he's, he's dead to it. And so he's saying that the spiritual reality, that Jesus' kingdom come to earth that we can live in now with our everyday lives is above the other one. And ultimately what he's getting is that this disciple doesn't quite get it yet. To say, I get it, I see who you are, you're Jesus, like, I'm in, but first, let me go take care of my family. Let me wait till the kids are older. Let me wait till the grandkids, I don't know, they're going to be around a long time. Let me take care of my parents, or let me just have some fun first, then I'll put you first. Like, if that's the posture of our hearts, what Jesus is showing us is that we don't really get it that his call only allows for him to be the first priority in our lives. He's saying, like, you don't actually get it, and you're kind of lying to yourself. Like, you're not actually going to follow me later. You're saying, I'll put you first later. Like, there will always be something else. And so the same question, when, when does family get in the way of following Jesus? When does family get in the way of following Jesus? Jesus is saying, the, the point of what he's saying here is that I have to be first. I have to be the number one priority, or you are not a disciple. He's showing us that there's not just like really intense Christians and then kind of just half-hearted ones. It's like he's first or he's not anywhere in the picture I've just like really been wrestling with this issue, this like all or nothing that I see in Jesus' teaching because even talking to other pastors, they'll say like, well, there's carnal Christians, there's casual Christians, and then there's committed Christians. And I'm like, I just don't see that in Scripture. Like if, I think if we start with Scripture and we let Scripture define what it looks like to follow Jesus, we're going to have a really hard time coming up with the category of, of casual Christian. Like there's... There's not just uh, radical, like I heard someone rant about the word radical because it kind of made classes where, you know, there's radical Christians and then there's normal Christians. And, and it's just showing that, like, there's radical Christians or, or there's not Christians. And I've just been so heavy-hearted about this because I know that family is so huge to us in our, in our culture, specifically in our church, and in, in our current, like, like our immediate 
area. It's, and it's perhaps the sneakiest idol because scripture has all kinds of beautiful commands and instructions on how to love and care for our families. And I think there's, there's kind of two dysfunctions when it comes to, to family. Because scripture, it calls us to love and care for our family, but only second to Jesus. And so the, the two dysfunctions would be, and I is fascinating. I was calling all kinds of pastors this week because I'm just like, help, like, like this passage is scary. And this older man uh, in his 70s, he said that uh, his parents, his, the, the people a generation beyond him, which maybe would have been the silent generation or something, I'm not sure. Uh, he said uh, the error that that generation most commonly fell into, fell into in the church was neglecting their families at the expense of church that they, they would, you know, be in church all the time. And, you know, I heard one story about a, a pastor who, like, missed his daughter's birthday for, like, years on end because of some conference that was that, that weekend, like, every, you know, every year or something like that. He was, like, doing the Lord's work, going to this conference and stuff. And so there's, there, there is that, that dysfunction where you kind of prioritize, you know, Christian-y things over your family. So I don't know if any of us have experienced that. I know some of us have. But then he said, the next generation down largely has fallen the other way. They've reacted to that. To now it's like Jesus will fit in when Billy doesn't have a sporting event or when the grandkids don't have something going on. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the people who are neglecting their, their families uh, for like, religious activity. But I, I want to take a, a hot second. Again, we're going to talk about it when we get to chapter 10. To, to show that this is actually good news. Because the best way to ruin your family, your marriage, or your kids is to make them little idols. To make them little gods. To put them first. That, that's the best way. If we make them ultimate, we will destroy the relationship. No human can be first in our lives except for Jesus. Because he's God. I was talking to someone, uh, a friend this week, talking about how he's uh, really excited to think about discipling his, his kids and uh, just like kind of a new idea of like, how do I spiritually lead my family and disciple my kids? And it just seemed super clear to me in that moment because I've been sitting in this passage all week, but like, do you, do you want to be a great disciple of your kids? Like start following Jesus being a disciple that makes disciples, and then it's just going to be its just going to be who you are by the time your kids get old enough. It's just going to, you're not going to be like, am I discipling my kids, right? It's just going to be, you're like, I've discipled 15 people by the time he's five. Like, it, it's just going to be who we are as we obey Jesus. You could do the same example with, with marriage, what does Jesus call us to do as we follow him? To, to lay down our lives, to take up our cross, to die to ourselves. Like, what, what would make a better marriage than pe- two people who are actively trying to follow Jesus and laying down their preferences and their rights and their desires? Like, that, that's the best way to have a marriage. When you make your spouse your idol, then you're saying, like, I need stuff from you. You have to deliver this to me. And, and no one can do that forever. And so inevitably, you're going to get really mad at them. And they will probably get really mad at you.
So Jesus is calling us, he has authority as Lord, as King, to call us away from, from even our families, to be prior, prioritized over that. And I just have two examples that I want us to consider and uh, how, how we think of Jesus. Jesus presents himself to us in Scripture as our Savior, coming to seek and save the lost from our sin. And also as Lord, as rabbi, as master, as teacher, as the one with the authority. And I think, in, at least in, in my life, I've seen a lot of people really riff on Jesus being our Savior, but no sense of, of lordship, no sense of actually following him and obeying him. And, and a, a silly example that I read this week is, you know, my name is Josh Four, and if you call me up and saying like, Hey, Josh, do you want to come over for dinner? Don't bring four. You know, it's like, what? It's not like one part of me is Josh and the other part is four or something like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's just, that's my name. That's, that's who I am. Jesus is Savior and Lord. Like, hey, bring the Savior part, but that Lord stuff is, is a little scary and my kids are super cute, so just don't bring the Lord part. And then the next, the next illustration, if you will, is kind of one of logic. So if you are doing the ratios and you make the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles, the, the thickness of one piece of paper, then like the size of the entire universe would be a stack of paper 310 million miles high. Like that's how big the universe is. Like if the earth, the sun is just one piece of paper and we got a stack 310 million miles high. And we read in prayer time, the family prayer time this morning, that Jesus created everything, and everything is from him and for him. He's Lord over all of it. That's how big his authority is, how big his, his lordship is. And we're going to say, like, uh, these parts of my life I don't want you to be Lord over. Like it, just, it doesn't even really make sense. So as you consider comfort and security and family and following Jesus... Uh, consider that. Have you taken Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Because there's, there's, no, there's no options there. So what do we do with this? First off, check your heart. Do an emotion check. What are you feeling the most strongly? What kind of what arguments pop into your head? Those are okay. Like we, we can have this discussion and connecting group and stuff this week. Just be curious about that. Be curious about what kind of baggage you might have. Like maybe you came from a family system where that like family neglect in the name of Jesus happened. You know, in, in which case you need to look at some healing that, that goes on there. But I think a, a really helpful summary is Matthew six thirty-three from the Sermon on the Mount. It says, Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added to you. That's what Jesus is saying. Like, our hearts are satisfied in Jesus, living with him under his rule. Everything else falls into place. And then just sit with those questions. Believe that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. If you're curious about Jesus and you're not a Christian yet, you haven't decided to follow him, like, and you're curious about it, like, that's a sign that, that he loves you and he's coming after you. But I just ask you to sit with the questions. Where, when does comfort and security get in the way of following Jesus? 
Or is there an area of your life where Jesus is trying to call you out of comfort, but you're afraid to go there? You're afraid to leave that comfort. And so you haven't gone there, whether it's to talk to someone or to get rid of something in your life. It's some, it's some, air, oops, sorry, it's some area of comfort that uh, he's coming after. He says he will give us rest for our souls. He's the ultimate comfort. Like it's, I, I know I've made this joke like to where it's not funny anymore, but I've had like that pizza craving like a lot the last couple weeks, and I, I'm just like I want, and I realize it's really small. Like pizza is not the comfort I want, and so I, and so then I consider Jesus saying, "I will give you rest for your souls, not an eight corner pizza from Jets," and just to kind of meditate on that. Like Jesus said, He will give me the comfort and rest that I want, that I try to find in oblivion. And to talk about security, what does Jesus say right after verse 33? He says, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and the thief can't steal. So consider where comfort and security is keeping you from following Jesus and know that it's good news to let go of that. And then consider where does your family get in the way of following Jesus? sit with those questions, and I just want to put a, a couple things out there for you guys to consider. I've been thinking about this so much the last year. Like, what does it mean to, like, really follow Jesus? It seems so helpful, so, like, concrete. You know, being a Christian is, like, this, uh, a, a broader thing. It's a term not super common in Scripture, but following Jesus is very concrete. Like, we have four biographies plus the whole of Scripture that shows us what this means. So I've been thinking about this a lot. I have lots of thoughts, but I just wanted to give you kind of three basic things to kind of consider moving forward. And I have an acronym, PBP, kind of like BRB, only PBP. The first one is prayer. And maybe the response to this, by the power of the Spirit, the mercy of God, you can say, I've just been in the crowds. Maybe you need to come to Jesus and say, I've just been in the crowds pretty much my whole life. I've been faithfully a part of of church gatherings and all this stuff, but you are not the number one priority in my life. Ask him to forgive you for, for making Jesus a personal assistant or someone like a friend I hang out with when there's nothing else going on on Sundays. Like you don't have to fix it. You can just acknowledge that if that's, if that's where, you're, where you're at. First one is talk to him, pray. And then I'm so stoked that Zach got excited about the Matthew challenge uh, because the, the, the P or the B in the PBP is, is, is the Bible. And you can just open the Bible to Matthew and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I don't know how. Show me. That, like, that's all you have to do. You don't have to make anything out of it. You don't need to like construct stuff or be a, a seminary graduate. Just put yourself before the word and, and pray, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be a disciple. I don't want to be in the crowd. Show me how to follow you. And then the reason we put the the texting part in the Matthew reading plan, you don't have to text, you can email or call or you know, even better, hang out in person, uh, is because the local church, the body of believers, is called the body of Christ. Like, do you want to be with Jesus and spend time with him? Then be with your brothers and sisters in, in the local church. Prioritize Jesus by prioritizing time with his body. I mean, it, it's mind-blowing that the scruffy you know, little gathering that we, that we uh, do each week is, is a local expression 
of the, the body of our King and Savior, Jesus. So prioritize Jesus by spending prioritizing time with his people. And I don't mean to say that it's easy or it's not intimidating or it can be awkward. But there's just no other way to follow Jesus. We don't have any example in Scripture of someone following Jesus alone as like a lone ranger Jesus disciple. There's always a group. So PVP, prayer, Bible, people. Consider that moving forward if that's something you want to step into. And if you want a custom plan, I would love to pray about that with you and brainstorm with you. That's my jam. To close, I want to flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. At the end of the day, following Jesus is really pretty simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's not complex. It's just a matter of doing it, and that brings us to the gospel. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18, or I'm sorry, uh, we're looking at verses 1 and 2. It's on page 1877 if you're in the Pew Bible. To me, this, this passage has just been so exciting because I think it gets both of these things, that, that we have to do stuff, like we need to choose to follow him and leave things to follow him, and that it's all rooted in the grace of the gospel. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So do you see that, that like throwing off the stuff that entangles us, the things that gets in the way of following Jesus, the comfort and security and the peace of oblivion and the Netflix binges and all the like pressure to put your kids in every little league thing that's ever out there and not miss any event ever of your, of your grandkids' lives or, or whatever the, the pressure is, like throw off anything that so easily entangles. Do you see a scripture's accommodation? Like it's not saying it's this is like, a hard thing. It's easy for it to just kind of swipe in and strangle following Jesus. So that's the part we do, but look at the good news of the gospel. Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So it's not us. We don't create our faith. We don't write our faith. Jesus is the author. We don't perfect our faith. We don't make it complete. Jesus does that as we run the race. Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. On the cross, we see why Jesus has authority to call us away from comfort and our families. It's because he left comfort of perfect union with God, the Father, in heaven, and came to earth to live the uncomfortable life of a human, but then to be nailed to a cross and pierced in his side, whipped with a crown of thorns. He experienced the ultimate loss of comfort and security as he was nailed to a tree completely naked and vulnerable. And he did that for us, out of love for us. And he can call us, he has the authority to call us away from our families because in that moment, he was separated from perfect fellowship with God the Father. Jesus never calls us to do anything that he hasn't already done. And indeed, by doing what he does, we get to know him more. We commune with him more. Just like when you are around someone who is at the same life stage or has the same experience, you have that intimacy. 
We prioritize Jesus over comfort and security. We prioritize Jesus over even our biological families because that's what he did for us out of love. Let me pray.